0: Hard, scary, beautiful. If we trust somebody to see a little bit more deeply into us, we feel scared that if you really saw who I am, you would walk out the door so fast.
1: Oh my God, I am so excited for today's episode. I'm also a little bit upset that it's only 47 minutes long when it should be so much longer. Today's guest is Dr. Alexandra Solomon. She is a self-proclaimed love nerd, which is pretty much like the same thing as a love bird, by the way. She's a licensed clinical psychologist. She's also a professor at Northwestern University. She teaches a class called Marriage 101. She's actually doing the thing that we need more of. We need more relationship education and she she's teaching that class, which I think is amazing. She's also the author of a book that I love called Loving Bravely. And It's a beautiful conversation. It's warm. It's intimate. It's connected. And we talk about vulnerability. We talk about bringing relational awareness to your relationship. We talk about attachment theory and boundaries, which you're going to hear a lot more of this year on the Love Drive because of how important it is to forming good, healthy, intimate relationships. I love this episode. I'm so grateful I had the best time editing this episode because first of all, Alexandra is an amazing speaker and so it made my job really, really easy. And the content is near and dear to my heart. That's it, that's all I'm gonna say. Other than my name is Sean Galanos, and this is The Love Drive. Okay. Could you please introduce yourself?
0: Sure. I'm Dr. Alexandra Solomon.
1: And you're a therapist. You're an author of a book that I just read called Loving Bravely. You're also a professor at Northwestern. And you teach a class called Building, is it Building Love and Lasting Relationships, Marriage 101. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So those are really, those are the the points of the triangle of my career. I'm a practicing um, licensed clinical psychologist. I work with individuals and couples. That's one point. There's the teaching. Yeah. I I train graduate students to do couples therapy and I teach this undergraduate relationship education class at Northwestern University. And then the, the third point of the triangle is that I write, I write, I blog, and I present to all different audiences, professional audiences and lay audiences and young and old and that's the kind of like external facing translating what happens in academia and in clinical work translating that to the general public
1: i get the impression that you're like really into love
0: i, I call myself a love nerd <laughs> i'm unapologetically obsessed with romantic love all kinds of love but romantic love i'm i really i love nerding out on love and i want everyone to be as into it as i am <laughs>
1: I love the the concept of a love nerd. I, I, I guess I would identify as a love nerd as well. Yeah, yeah. Certainly yeah. not an expert, certainly not a guru, but some like a student of love. Student as
0: well. of love. I'm a student of love. I've been married to Todd Solomon for 20 plus years and I am a student of his love and have been and continue to be.
1: <laughs> you said that love is a classroom.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: What do you mean by that?
0: I think that our best and bravest approach to intimate partnership is to forever be students of our partners and students of that classroom for two that we build together Um, because otherwise love is too frustrating, right? There is, there's so much frustration and, and um, friction in love that unless we take a stance where those painful moments Are breathed into and where at least a little part of ourself holds on to the idea that this moment can teach me something. How I'm reacting to my partner right now has something to teach me. Unless we step into that framework, it's just so painful. The opportunities for missing each other, for misunderstanding each other, those opportunities never go away. So we can either fight and act as if somehow we can make this thing perfect which is what all of the fairy tales we ever grew up with show us. Or we can just lean into the fact that that imperfection is what makes it a classroom. Like it helps us grow and heal and work our old wounds out kind of again and again with somebody who's also in it with us, you know?
1: I like to think that every relationship that I've ever had has w- happened for a reason and has taught me something. I don't believe in failed relationships. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I sometimes have clients or people that say, Oh, what a waste of time. You know, that relationship ending was a waste of time and I just don't see it. You know, I don't see it that way.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's the pain talking, you know, that's the pain talking. And I think, um, I think there's pain needs to be held and held in such a way that then at some point there's something else that enters the picture, enters the room, which is, Oh, but I learned this thing. Like I learned this thing. I wouldn't maybe have otherwise known about myself. And now I can take that and cultivate that and bring in something different to the next relationship. But when we don't do that, when we stay right, that when we stay in that sort of skinny, narrow story, this was a waste of time. We really disempower ourselves because then what we do is we try to find the next person who's not going to do to us what was done to us. That's really disempowering versus. I've made these shifts and I know now how to be more effective. I know now a little bit more about where my boundaries are. I know now a little bit more about how to ask for what I need. So much more empowering.
1: And I guess that's how you can learn about love Mm
0: -hmm.
1: a little bit over time.
0: Yeah. I think one of the risks that love nerds like you and I (laughs) run is that we present this idea that all you have to do is figure yourself out just like, do this, you know, understand this, fix this, heal this, and then, then go find somebody and you'll make a good relationship. And I think that is like the arrow does go in that direction. Like the more we understand ourselves and cultivate that self-aware relationship with ourselves, I do think we're better positioned to, cr- to find a partner who really is healthy for us. But the arrow goes in the other direction too, that there's some stuff we can't learn outside of the ring, you know? Like even with a stack of books, even with amazing podcasts like yours, even with all these different things, you know, we part of the learning has to be like in the in the muck, in the mess. And sometimes, like you're saying, sometimes that means the relationship does not go the distance. But that's that there's still learning there, and there's learning there that you can't learn from the safety behind your phone or your you know book.
1: This strikes a chord because I've been single for a long time. And I've been doing a lot of work, <laughs> mm-hmm. and I'm working with a therapist, and I've had some short relationships in the last ten years, but nothing really instrumental, you know and And I know for a fact that I am so much more comfortable alone, yeah, 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 because i'm not I'm not being challenged in some ways it, that relationships would challenge me mhm. Mm-hmm. I'm sort of ready. I'm ready for a new challenge,
0: uh-huh. Uh-huh. With somebody, you know, this is one of, the, um, one of the questions I think I've gotten most often since publishing Loving Bravely is, what if your partner is less love nerdy than you are, <laughs> you know? Like, can that happen? Can a love nerd and a non-love nerd love each other? I think that's such an interesting question because we talk a lot about cultural differences, racial differences, personality differences, gender differences, and how we bridge those. And the difference between somebody who is super invested in the work, partnering with somebody who kind of is really comfortable living on the surface, I think that's an interesting kind of intercultural relationship. But I, to me, it is, can the less nerdy person at least hold space for the nerdier person? So the difference between, it's not my thing, but tell me more, I'm here and I care about it because you care about it versus the eye roll and the that's you know woo woo or that's ridiculous so i think there's something about holding the work in contempt versus holding the holding the work with curiosity i don't know babe i'm not ever going to read the number of books you've read i i may do a little bit of couples therapy with you but i'm probably not going to commit to you know that's different than like oh my god i don't believe in therapy that's a massive trigger phrase for me. I don't believe in therapy. So that's a, that one I think is tough for somebody who is really, really anti, like I would not do couples therapy for that person to partner with somebody who's saying, I think we're hitting some stumbling blocks here. And I feel like we could use the help of somebody who can hear us, help us hear each other in some different ways. I tell my students, if you take nothing else away from my class, please take this away that the first time your partner says to you, honey, I think we're having a hard time and we could use some couples therapy. We could use the support of somebody. The first time you, some, your partner asks you that, go, just go the first time. Cause all too often the couples who come into my office. They're in year eight of not having made love. They are, they've had the same fight so many times that it's like this well-worn path through the woods, you know? Um, or they've got, They've got one foot out the door. So, people have different thresholds for which they call something a problem, you know? And so, the one who's got the more sensitive threshold and says, I think we're in trouble. I think we need help. I want the other person to lean in, even if they have some skepticism. The science is clear couples therapy works. It doesn't work all the time, it's imperfect. It makes sense why it works, right? To have some third person in that space with the couple who's able to kind of hold a little bit more awareness. Of the system of the space between is incredibly helpful because when we're in it, I mean, I've been doing therapy with couples for as long as I've been married, and when my husband and I get in it, it's I can't hold a a, a gracious, grand systemic space where I can see the whole thing, right? When I'm in it, I'm in it, and you know, we don't. I don't think we ever really transcend that.
1: Yeah. Are you a volume up or a volume down strategist? Oh,
0: I am hard volume down. <laughs> I mean, I go <laughs> I go somewhere where nobody can find me. <laughs> I'm a volume up uh, guy. And in
1: one of my relationships, she was volume down. And I mean, classic, right? Push-pull. Uh, and we went to therapy. Within a year, we were 23 years old
0: yeah good for you and
1: right? it was and and we found recovery, me through alcoholism, her through her codependence, and i'm I mean, forever grateful for that experience. We were in therapy for two years,
0: yeah, beautiful
1: and i I want i i I would love there to be a th- like an objective third party involved in my relationship whenever it's needed
0: whenever it's needed, right. We call it like a dose based approach. You do a dose of therapy. you don't stay in it forever, but you step away and then. You know, you were planning a wedding, so stuff gets kicked up again. So you go back in and then you, you know, sort of like coming and going. My husband and I have had a variety of therapists throughout our relationship. And, um, and I, I feel, I know that I have been more hesitant to talk about my history in couples therapy, um, than even my own individual therapy history. I, I feel, I remember for a long time, I felt really sensitive about that. I felt shame of being a couples therapist who's had couples therapy. And a while back, I was like, you know what? <laughs> I got to walk the walk if I'm talking the talk. And so I think part of the, what's therapeutic about couples therapy is it's a declaration to self and other that we matter. Our love matters. And it's couples saying we're going to have this hour a week where we put our phones away. We close the door. There's no kids. There's no job. There's no work. There's just you and I cultivating us. I think that is one aspect of the therapeutic element of it. It's the therapist certainly and the therapist skills and training, but it's also just the declaration that we matter and we're investing in us. I think that's a big part
1: of it. In the book Loving Bravely, there's my stuff, there's your stuff, and there's our stuff. Mm-hmm. And seeing a therapist could help with the our stuff part. Actually, it could help with with the whole all three of them to figure out what belongs to who. Right. And then also to nurture the our stuff.
0: Right exactly exactly yes for sure the the science that's been really helpful around this is attachment theory like attachment science so we know like when we're born we attach body heart soul the whole thing we attach to our primary caregivers in this way in which the, our primary caregivers like live in our bones like they live at a cellular level they matter like we are interdependent from the very beginning and the cool thing that happened with attachment science was it was initially the study of the parent-child relationship and then in the 1990s teams of researchers came in and were like wait a minute let's see what happens with adults and it turns out adults in a in a pair bond in an intimate relationship attach to each other the same darn way that babies attach to their caregivers like we attach to intimate partners at this profoundly deep cellular level and so When I can't find you, when I can't feel you, when you're in your volume up mode and I'm in my volume down mode, it's an attachment panic. Like it's a panic that happens at a very, very deep level. I think we have ways in this modern era of really emphasizing you've got to be able to stand on your own two feet. We're so hard on the independence and you've got to be complete as a person. But that belies the science. And the science is that we're interdependent, that we really do. When there's a rift in the relationship, it really, Hurts and it hurts in a in a profound way. Sue Johnson, who created um, emotion focused therapy, she's the one who really has helped couples therapists and the general public alike understand how profoundly interdependent we are on each other and how much love matters. Oh, love matters!
1: <laughs> <laughs> I, I just like that as a bumper sticker.
0: That's right, <laughs> love matters. Love
1: matters. Other than reading your book and taking your class, how are we supposed to know how to love if I think a lot of us haven't been taught? Mm-hmm. We don't I don't have a manual.
0: Right? That's right. Yeah. I always say that we're when we're growing up, we're like these little social scientists in our house. You know, we're absorbing all kinds of mostly implicit, sometimes explicit lessons about what it is to love and be loved. We watch. The adults in our households relate to each other and we feel how they relate to us. And so we have already, we come into our adult intimate relationships with all of these kind of paradigms and constructs and expectations of who we ought to be and who the other person ought to be that are so implicit that when our partner doesn't meet what we expect, we feel we're triggered, we go volume up, we go volume down. But we often lack the language to describe what it is that's happening, you know? And so to me, I think a big part of it is looking with curiosity and with compassion at that original love classroom, which was the house that you grew up in. It's not parent blaming. Like oftentimes my students are resistant because they don't want to blame their parents because they love their parents. So it's not, we're not ever victims of our parents, you know? But our parents are also works in progress and they have their own stories and they are their grandparents' kids, you know, so they came into, which I think is a massive compassion opener and helps us do that hard work of figuring out what we learned growing up and how it's helping us and how it's getting in our way.
1: Yeah. Some Someone said recently, we didn't raise our parents. Yeah. Someone else did that.
0: That's right. So right. I, I
1: don't have to take I don't have to take ownership of how they were raised. They were raised in a in a different generation, a different era and they're doing the best they can with with what what they had. Mm-hmm. And yep. we we are all doing the same.
0: Yeah, and the more I think the more we can see that stuff with with some amount of clarity, the less likely we are to play it out with our partners. There's this whole approach to couples therapy called Imago therapy, Harville Hendricks, getting the love you want, that um, really is about how we partner with people who have the potential to kind of re wound us in the ways our parents wounded us. If we had an unavailable parent, we may be drawn to an unavailable intimate partner because that desire to kind of fix it, you know, to like to get what we didn't get growing up. Oh, I and keep working it. Yeah. Mhm. And that doesn't mean we don't have to make our partner wrong just because they do hold that element of difficulty being available. It does mean that it's really helpful for my partner to understand, listen, part of what draws me to you is that sometimes it's hard to get your attention. And so, and what is, where does that come from? Like where does your struggle to connect come from? And the more we can understand where our partner's tender spots come from, the more they can understand where our tender spots come from, like then that becomes the work. Um, that that's the, my stuff plus your stuff equals our stuff.
1: What you're talking about sort of reminds me uh, a little bit of a segue into dialectics. Is that, am I saying it right? Mm-hmm. Which is something that I learned about in your book and and has sort of three main points uh, that everything is connected to everything else, which I can totally get behind. Change is constant in and inevitable. I can totally get behind that. <laughs> And that opposites can be integrated to form a closer approximation to the truth. And the way I understood that is when I had that therapist when I was growing up, um, he said that a sign of emotional maturity is is being able to have multiple competing emotions Mm. at any one time.
0: I love that. Yeah.
1: And that could look like, hey, partner, you're really pissing me off right now. And I love you.
0: <laughs> That's right. Yeah.
1: Or hey, family member, or hey, coworker. I yep. think you're so important to me, and this is driving me crazy.
0: Hmm. Yep. Yep. And the ability to sit in that paradox is so hard, and it's essential. And I think what we want to do, we want to make love follow rules. Like we want to just make it orderly. Like make a flow chart make a graph, make a, make an agreement, make a rule, set a parameter. And I always imagine love off to the side, like laughing their ass off. Like you think that love is going to cooperate with some flow chart that you design. So a big part of it is just like being able to more and more comfortably sit in that paradox. You know, um, Esther Peral is one of um, my favorite thinkers and writers um, and a dear friend of mine about love and sex and intimacy and her whole first book, Mating in Captivity. Is about the complete dialectic of we crave from the same person security and novelty. I want you to have my back, and I want you to keep me on my toes. <laughs> and that doesn't get resolved. It, we sometimes we make a we we try to resolve it, and our work really is to sit comfortably in that. I think about when I um, when I travel for you know to give a talk or go teach somewhere. Every time I do this, I check into a hotel room, you know, and I open, I'm a, I'm a wife and I'm a mom of um, two teens and I have a dog who's sitting right here wanting my attention while we talk. And so I'm in, I'm in connection a lot, you know, so I get to go to a hotel sometimes and I open the door to the hotel room. And at the very same moment, I had this sense of like, oh, I have nobody around me. I have this big old bed, a remote that is all my own and simultaneously i feel how lonely i am and that is at the same moment and so that my job then is to my work in that moment is to expand and breathe into that paradox rather than foreclosing on oh my gosh i love being in here it must mean that i should divorce my husband and live as a single person or oh my gosh i hate being away from my family it means i've done my whole job wrong and i shouldn't travel for work and blah blah blah, blah. You know, like the urge to foreclose on one or the other is less interesting, and as your therapist would say, less mature than just breathing into like, oh, look at that paradox. I have total freedom right now, and I'm lonely as hell. Those both things are true. I'm delighted and I'm sad at the same time.
1: What a rich experience.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: For a long time, I couldn't do that. If I was angry, I was angry, and I I really had a hard time finding how I could even have loved you in the first place. Yes,
0: that's right. It's
1: so hard.
0: Hmm. Yeah. my One of my um, therapy mentors describes early in her marriage, you know, getting in a fight with her husband. I may even put this in the book. I don't remember if it's in the book or not, but she would describe getting in a fight with her husband. And the thought was, I hate him. And with the work, couples therapy, you know, under it became, I hate this moment.
1: I hate this moment. Yeah, it's in your book.
0: Good. I'm so glad it's in there. Yeah, it's in there.
1: Yeah. Because
0: <laughs> it's important.
1: Uh, I hate this moment. Yeah. This moment is really challenging me.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I sort of had to stop reading your book like 60 or 70% of the way in because there was so many things that I wanted to talk about and there was just no way that we would be able to get to like a fraction of it, uh, which is a ringing endorsement for the book. I can't wait to sit down and read it again and really take my time, because there was uh, I connected with so many different parts of it.
0: Thank you, thank you. Yeah,
1: would say truly, it's a truly beautiful book. So thank you for taking the time to write it. I'm I'm assuming that writing a book is a lot of hard work. (laughs) So thank you. And the book is about sort of a big picture. It's about relational Mm self-awareness. And can you tell me what that means?
0: Yeah. So relational self-awareness, I define as um, cultivating a curious and compassionate relationship with yourself Mm -hmm. and using that as a foundation for how you love and are loved by an intimate partner. And so I think oftentimes we want our partner to heal us or to love us as we are, which, which we certainly do deserve deserve to be loved as we are. But sometimes I think we ask, we ask for that instead of cultivating within ourselves. And so another dialectic, another both and is, I want you to accept me as I am. And I need to accept myself as well. So Self compassion is essential. I think sometimes we try to have a partner just love us without condition. When when we when we struggle to do that with ourselves, um, and the consequences are massive. I know in my own relationship, I am far more likely to be critical and nitpicky at Todd when I'm struggling to just be really loving and gentle with myself. There's a total relationship there. I can't give him grace, compassion kindness, and gentleness if I'm not giving it to myself. And so how we are cultivating our own relationship with self is really essential. And I think it's easy to miss. And so relational self-awareness is about looking at the patterns and the paradigms and the wounds that we bring into love. And it's about practicing moment by moment, how what am I, how am I relating to myself right now? Am I relating to myself with compassion or am I being really self-critical? You're to this, you're to that, you're so this, you're so that. You're broken, you're worthless, you're, you know, all these sort of shame loaded things that we're all at risk. You know, this is Brene Brown's work has been so important to so many of us around understanding the power of shame and the healing qualities of vulnerability and that that all has to do with how I relate to me and how I relate to me is going to shape a hundred times out of a hundred how I show up in the space with you.
1: I balled my way through daring greatly. Just, sure, just, we all did. I mean, yeah, great, yeah, great, great job.
0: Uh, <laughs> right, that's right.
1: I mean, um, amazing, amazing amounts of tears, uh, mm-hmm. which came from just, you know, sadness at how I sometimes speak to myself. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, I've got a picture of little me at six years old on my fridge, hanging on a maple syrup bucket. Beautiful. Wearing acid-washed jeans and a bread bandana. Yeah. And uh, I'm just reminded, like, every time I talk negatively to myself, like, would I say that to him, you know?
0: Right. Beautiful. It's such a beautiful opener to self-compassion. Yeah. I think more and more I, um, I talk about, you know, the, the young, I, I have my couples put um, pictures of themselves as young people on their fridges as well because it goes that way too, right? Like, would you talk, you know, look at that picture of your partner, when they were little and you wouldn't talk to them the way that you're, talking, you know, that's a massive opener too. I think we can have much more compassion for our partners, frustrating qualities when we can hook that frustrating quality to the story of who they used to be and what they had to survive in order to get to today. You know, I think that's really, it's important to give it to ourselves and it's important to give it to our partners.
1: Yeah. I, I'm just thinking of all my exes and their baby photos, you know, they're like small <laughs> child photos and they're they're so they're so delightful. I mean they're you know full of openness and joy and like trust mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. some you know life has shaped us to be who we are now right. with with our walls, with our defenses with with our reactions, with you know our wounds mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It can be so yeah. hard to to just remember that you know we're sort of a collection of experiences
0: yeah and that i love that idea that um pain isn't we hold we don't fix pain we just hold pain we just hold it with gentleness and so another of my favorite teachers terry real is it terry real who said this who the heck said this get it right the, the more immature parts of us you know get activated like our wounds get activated and the goal is to just not have them like take over and drive the bus you know so i don't know that we ever get to the point where we're not Activated and stirred because of, because we have wounds, because we've developed walls, because we've had to adapt to really difficult situations. That doesn't go away. But I think that to me, we were talking a little bit ago about the volume down, how I go volume down. To me, I will probably always, I'll probably be an 85 year old woman going volume down. But my, my work is to go less deeply into that hole and to find, find the door or the ladder <laughs> to come back out of it sooner to not go so deep and to come out sooner, to shrink the amount of time that I'm there. I don't think I'll ever be in control of when I get triggered, when I get stirred, when old wounds get activated in me. But I sure as heck can, can develop different ways of relating to that wounded, activated feeling. And our knee jerk so often is to blame our other person, our partner for making us feel this way. You made me feel that way. No. <laughs> no. What happened in the space between us activated this old wound of mine and now I'm getting lost in that old wound and I need to work on that myself and I need to invite you in as an ally and a partner to me in that wounded space. So different. That's so different.
1: Yeah, you're you're bringing up something that I learned yesterday was sort of that we're we're not responsible for our triggers but we're absolutely responsible for our reaction. Yeah. And it's the time in between the trigger and the reaction. That's that's really important. Like, can I pause here, mm-hmm. and can we change the narrative a little bit? Yeah, yeah. Because I'm I'm telling myself a story, right? The the trigger brings up a story, and and it's not necessary. Actually, for the most part, it's probably not true.
0: Yeah. Uh huh. Yep. I have couples when they get into that language. So there's a trigger. There's a story that attaches itself to the trigger. And so, my a client will start to tell a story. And I know when you said that thing, you were disrespecting me and you don't care about me. And in that moment, it's like I don't even exist to you. And there, there are three chapters into the story that the partner, you know, when we slow down and we can check in and the partner can actually describe what was happening for them, that's not the story. But when that story gets going, it feels so convincing. You don't love me. I don't matter to you, you don't see me, that feels so convincing to us. Um, And it's really hard to slow down and back up and be curious enough to really try to understand what was going on inside of our partners, mind, heart, body, soul.
1: And it's hard because the defenses go up as soon as you say, you did this, or you made me feel this way. I mean, as soon as someone uses that language... I think now I can probably be a little bit better at taking a pause, but actually that's not true because last night I was having a phone call with a family member and we're both volume up people and I was not able, you know, I, I do all this work so that I can be a loving partner to somebody. But a lot of it goes out the window when it's, you know, a perfect stranger cutting me off or a family member that's disagreeing with me.
0: Uh-huh. 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 Yep. Yeah. That knee jerk stuff is really, it's hard to manage. I think it's why, well, you can't go anywhere to any mental health conference without having something about mindfulness there, right? Mindfulness has has really taken over the field of, of mental health. Which is always such a laugh because, you know, the Buddhists in Nepal and, and all over the non-Western world have, of course, been practicing mindfulness for thousands and thousands of years. And these, us Western mental health professionals are now like, we have this great thing. It's called mindfulness. (laughs) And so to us, it's quite new. Yeah. Go ahead, you guys. Okay. We've been doing this for thousands of years, but welcome. (laughs) And I think when we, it's another kind of self-care practice, right? When we, when we work on our own mindfulness, Practices, we do widen out our zone of tolerance for frustration. We increase the chances that we'll be able to catch the trigger and sit in a pause and regulate ourselves before we respond. But I tell you what, right? You throw a, a family member in the mix of a, a mom, a dad, an intimate partner, a kid. When the stakes are high and the relationship is tight, it's harder to manage that trigger. And so another practice then is just to say time out. I love us too much to keep talking right now. I love that phrase. I love us too much to keep talking right now. Um, which is hard because what the trigger is saying is you have to prove your point. It has to be right now. They need to understand. You know that's, That is powerful force to be reckoned with.
1: And I love us too much to be talking right now. I need to take a break is different than a volume down strategy.
0: 100%.
1: Because you're saying we're going to get back to it. I just need some time to let the emotions settle a little bit. I think that's beautiful. Mm -hmm. I love us too much to keep talking right now. Holy shit. I've never said that in a relationship. I can't wait to have the forethought and the patience and the pause required to say that. I guess what I'd like to say today to you is that if you're struggling and you need some support with your love life, with your dating life, with your relationship, if there's anything that I can do to help, I would like to help. I am here to support you. So I offer coaching as a way to help you get from where you are to where you would like to be. So if this is applicable to you, then I invite you to contact me. Either send me an email at sean at thelovedrive.com, that's S-H-A-U-N, or go to thelovedrive.com forward slash coaching to learn more if coaching is right for you. It's not right for everybody. Some, Some people need therapy, some people need coaching, other people just need a sounding board. But in any case, I invite you to contact me so we could figure out if and what I can do to help. Today on The Love Drive... We're talking with Dr. Alexandra Solomon, and we're about to dive into boundaries. And I heard maybe in your book (laughs) that boundaries are the space between you and not you. Mm -hmm. What do you mean by that?
0: A boundary is a space where you and I meet. It's the end of me and the beginning of you. And we get lots of lessons early in our life about the kind of boundaries that we are entitled to or allowed to have. The essence of any kind of trauma, sexual, physical, verbal, um, trauma, and abuse is that it's a boundary violation, right? It's somebody imposing their will upon us at a time and a stage and a place where we aren't able to say, stop, no, back up. Um, So for those of us who've had early boundary violations in the form of trauma or abuse, it can feel really hard to know when to say when and how to say when, and even where our boundaries are. I remember reading an article by Janine Roth, who's done a lot of work um, around women and food. She's a great book called Women, Food, and God. It's like, it's a really beautiful book. And she talks about giving girls and women a six foot, and this would be applicable to boys and men as well, six feet of um, red yarn and having them make a circle around themselves and being like this is your physical space you know you are entitled to this much space around you and you're entitled of who gets to come in and when they come in and how they come in and just that some of our healing work is around knowing even knowing when there's a boundary violation and what that feels like i describe in the book for me i know that i'm i'm allowing a boundary to be violated i'm i'm colluding with a boundary being violated i feel this like twist It's in my gut, you know, and it's, and I feel like I have to, I am staying in a space where my gut's twisting, like I'm getting data that this isn't healthy. This is not, I'm not well in this space, but learning how our bodies cue us to, you're too close. You've come too far. I don't feel okay about this. We have to learn how that feels. That's step one. And then step two is how to articulate that. So those are like the intrusive boundary violations. And then there's the ones where we're violating somebody else's boundaries, you know, exiting our own business to muck around in somebody else's business. And so sometimes our boundary work is like learning how to like rein it in. Do you want my tell me what you want from me? Do you want my advice? Do you want my opinion? Are you open to feedback? <laughs> Versus just telling people what to do and how they should be doing it and how they should be living. So those boundary violations are you know, about what comes in and what goes out. And the other piece that's super important about boundaries is that they're really culturally defined and determined. Right. Even just like there's interesting science about if you look at how close we stand to each other when we're talking, different parts of the world have different definitions of how close two people should stand, when touch is appropriate, when touch isn't appropriate. So boundaries are super duper duper contextualized. So what I may consider a boundary violation is very, might be very different than what somebody else would consider a boundary violation based on just our cultural location, even. The part of the place on this globe that we grew up.
1: I get the impression that the best way to deal with boundaries is to talk about them. Mm-hmm. Especially when it comes to your partner, your family, people that are close to you. Yeah. Because we can't assume.
0: And to resist the urge to say something like, it's obvious. Anybody knows that's inappropriate right anybody should know that
1: because they're personal
0: they're personal right so like thinking about you know an early when a a couple is kind of settling into the early in their relationship and she sees that her partner is commenting on ex's photos on facebook she has to resist the urge to say it's obvious to anybody that that's a betrayal because maybe for her partner she has a different sense of what betrayal means and what a boundary violation means. So they're co-constructed, they're co-created in the space between two people. And I think it's hard when there is something that feels like a boundary violation. It may feel like absolute crystal clear truth to me that if you're saying you're my girlfriend, you no longer comment on your ex-girlfriend's photos. That may feel like capital T truth to me. But can I be curious enough to say, like, let's can we figure this out together and figure out what's going to work for each of us?
1: yeah that's not a capital T truth for me mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and it might be for somebody else, yeah so let's come together and figure out figure figure this out together
0: mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. My favorite question is is how can I help instead of mm. just helping?
0: I love that yeah, yeah,
1: Yep. and the answer can be, oh, just you being there just asking that is 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 enough yeah, thank you. Mm -hmm. or here, do this, (laughs) do these things, support me in this way, but not in in a way that I'm I'm sometimes compelled to help somebody right? because I'm not minding my own
0: business. No, we're in fact killing them with kindness. I'm just trying to help. (laughs) Don't you understand how much I love you? I'm doing this for you. (laughs) That's killing somebody with kindness. If they haven't asked to sign up for your newsletter called How You Should Live Your Life. It's not welcome. They're not, they're not ready for it. They're not interested in it. Someone yeah.
1: said that um, unsolicited advice is a form of verbal abuse.
0: It totally is. I'm on board with that. I mean, we need to be careful when when we use the word abuse. But if for sure it's a boundary violation, unsolicited advice is 100% a boundary violation.
1: That's true. We do have to be careful how we use the word abuse. Because
0: mm-hmm. mm-hmm. people that
1: have actually had real abuse would be like, well, you know. Is it is it? <laughs> So a lot of the stuff that we're talking about here, you go into extreme detail in your book. So it would behoove people to just get the book if they want to learn any more about all of this, plus so much more. We're not even going to touch on Soulmates because I feel like we could probably do a whole episode on Soulmates. That's
0: right. We'll be here all week.
1: We're we're here (laughs) all week. We're doing a... It's a 72-hour podcast. (laughs) I, I, I... I, I want to talk about soulmates, but I'm not going to go there because I feel like we could do a whole episode on it. But there's so much in in the book. There's a quote that you said that that sort of struck me, and so I want to read it. When we take the risk to dig a little deeper, what we access is our vulnerability, our most authentic expression of self, creating the potential to deepen the connection with yourself and with your intimate partner. Mm-hmm. I find that incredibly beautiful.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hard, scary, beautiful. If we trust somebody to see a little bit more deeply into us, that's how how trust forms. We feel scared that if you really saw who I am, you would walk out the door so fast. And in fact, those tender stories of who we had to be at another time in our lives or what we had to endure or what we came through actually makes us incredibly lovable and draws people to us.
1: Yeah. I mean, I I am both an intimacy junkie and terrified mm-hmm. of really being vulnerable.
0: Yeah. That's what it is to be human. <laughs> that is what it is to be yeah. We're as drawn to it as we are scared of it. Mm-hmm.
1: Dialectics.
0: <laughs> Dialectics. Yes.
1: Would you be willing to tell me the story of the marital toothbrush?
0: Yes. That's a, that's a story of dialectic, isn't it? Mm. So we were, uh, I was pissed at Todd and I (laughs) was, and I was in a triggered place where I was sure I was going to just, just lay it all out for him and explain to him how he was failing me (laughs) as a partner. And I, and I was in our room and I was, and I was, I had taken a number of things, a number of sort of like peas under the mattress. Remember the story, the princess and the pea, and there's the pea under the mattress. I had been ignoring a number of peas, and it, they were all built up now. And he walked into the bedroom door, and I was just like, "I'm so upset." And I was, I was not yelling; it wasn't yelling, but I was flooded about. And a, a core challenge in our marriage is we've got two big careers, we've got two kids we adore, and we're constantly navigating who does what, when, how, for whom. And I was feeling unseen, devalued, unappreciated. And like I was carrying more of the load than I could handle. So I lay into him and it's a very much a you thing. You aren't and you don't and you're so, and he's trying mightily to offer empathy and, you know, and we're getting kind of caught in our dance and our son comes in the room. He'd had, he was a few years ago. He'd had a bad dream and I always feel defensive about this part. It wasn't that he came in the room because we, we were yelling so loud that we woke him up. It really wasn't. <laughs> he came in our room and we had sort of like made a little nest for him on the floor and then needed to kind of continue this fight. So we went into the bed, into the bathroom, um, went into our bathroom and closed the door to continue our fight in the bathroom. And in that kind of break in the action, I remembered a thing or two about the work that I do. And I was realizing this is not helpful. He's on my team. That was the thing I was trying to remember. He's on my team. I hate this moment, but he's on my team. And how can I enlist his support? And I knew that I needed to make an apology or repair around how how hot I had come in, right? How amplified I'd been. But it wasn't it's hard for me to offer an apology. I think I get so when I become aware that my tone has been harsh, I feel ashamed of that. Mm. And it's hard for me to apologize. So we're in the bathroom and trying to figure out where we're going to pick this thing up. And out of the corner of my eye, I see our toothbrush holder. And he and I are the only two people who use this toothbrush holder, but jammed into this thing are no less than eight toothbrushes. And I, in that moment, I just was like, what the fuck? Like, Can I swear on your podcast? Sure.
1: Yeah. Like, what the fuck? (laughs)
0: Like, what is this? Suddenly like held the entire nature of our marriage. Like this is so ridiculous. Like none of it makes sense. It's all really hard. We're doing the best we can. And so I did um, what John Gottman would say was like a little verbal white flag it was just like, I was like, babe, what is like, what is going on with this toothbrush holder? <laughs> and he's like, yeah, I don't know. And I said, which one do you use? And he said, I use the pink one. And I was like, no, no, you don't. It, like that's my, I use the pink one. And he says, No, I use the pink one. I I know you do. You get up before me most days. And so then the pink one is moist. And so I really like to use the pink one because it's moist. And so in that moment I realized also that we share the same toothbrush. And I was just done. I was like, this is all so ridiculous. Like we're doing the best we can. You know, this is this is us. (laughs) This is what we're trying to hold and navigate. And I felt this surge of compassion for me, empathy for him, and just the sense that like we're doing the best we can, you know.
1: I love that. I love that. Sometimes it's just, it's a little moment like that that can really pull you out Mm
0: -hmm. and
1: reconnect you with your partner. Yeah. Little white flag.
0: And when, when one person does a little white flag, it's super helpful. And the other person can honor that, you know, he saw that I was trying, you know,
1: (laughs) because some people just take that little white flag and rip it up into shreds and just keep going.
0: What are you doing? (laughs) We're trying to have a serious conversation here. Don't
1: change the subject. <laughs> okay, I have two questions for you. What is a way in which your life uh, turned out differently than you thought it would?
0: Mm. Oh my gosh. I don't know that I knew that I would be somebody who be able to be married for as long as I am married. I I I grew up in a family with quite a bit of relational struggle and challenge. And I think I had in some ways the cards stacked against me in terms of being able to create and nurture something that feels good and healthy. So I think that's different than maybe I would have at 14 known was possible for me. Yeah. To me, all of the therapy I've done and my commitment to being a love nerd (laughs) uh, is kind of how that
1: happened. Oh, beautiful. You're a miracle. You're a a marriage miracle. (laughs) I don't know. I've got one more question for you. I sometimes give free love advice. Well, actually, I do it every week, but I sometimes bring a sign and I put it on the street and I sit there with sometimes with my microphone, sometimes not, uh, just as a way of giving back and and as a way of connecting with people with different struggles. One of the hardest questions that I get is, uh, "What is love?" Mm -hmm. And I never really know how to answer it. So i'm I'm giving you the I'm giving you the one that I have a hard
0: time answering beautiful. Well, I know it's a verb. I know it's a verb that it has to be enacted and practiced. Uh, My favorite definition of love is from, um, so bell hooks is one of my favorite feminist authors. And she wrote a book called all about love. And she uses a definition that she got from M. Scott Peck, who's like an old time, like 1980s, one of the initial self-help gurus. And his definition of love is that it is the ongoing commitment to the spiritual growth of another person and that it is an uh, in it, that it is a relationship of constancy. And the two pieces of that I love is that loving somebody means bearing witness to the continuing evolution of their soul and that there's no way of loving somebody without that constancy. I was here yesterday for you. I'm here today for you. And I'll be there for you again tomorrow. That constancy, that commitment that so many of us fear and struggle with um loving somebody requires us to put both of our feet in and say i'm here and i will be here um that that's what helps us create that container that's safe enough to to be vulnerable
1: that is also one of my favorite definitions of love
0: Mm -hmm. it's a good one
1: care compassion respect and the ongoing support of your spiritual development yeah yeah. Can't really find a better one. Mm-hmm. Where can we find you?
0: Well, um, the best place is on my website, dralexandrasolomon.com. And on that website, you'll find my social media. The social media venue that I enjoy the most is Instagram. I really have been enjoying working with, a, I love quotes, <laughs> you know, and so, I've got um, quotes in those little sort of micro-blogs on Instagram and on my website. There's um, longer articles and lots of resources, um, books that I have loved about love and sex and parenting. Um, So there's a lot of information there.
1: Also, where to get your book is on Amazon and also on your website.
0: Absolutely. Yep. Amazon, Barnes & Noble. I love when people send me a picture of my book on the shelf in Barnes & Noble. I always just like delight in seeing seeing my baby out in the world and all these different bookstores. It's really fun.
1: Thank you so much. I really, really appreciate you and the work that you've done and the time that you've given me. It means a lot.
0: Thanks for having me on. I really enjoyed it.
1: You're so welcome. How delightful was that episode? You can find Dr. Alexandra Solomon on Instagram at dr.alexandra.solomon. Follow her Ah, and follow me. I'm at the love drive. And if you want to reach out to me, that is a great way to say hello. Also, thank you so much for listening. Really, it means the world to me. I, I say that Right, like every week I say it means the world to me and every week it's true. I have a document that I update and whenever I get a nice message from someone that says that this is helping them in some way, I put that in the document so that when I am having bouts of low self-esteem or I am wondering what the heck I am doing, I look at that document and I remember that this is what I wanna be doing. Because as someone who works from home alone, this can be really hard sometimes and it can feel isolating, but your messages and your connections, they do mean the world. So thank you. If you want to find out more about me or about The Love Drive, go to thelovedrive.com. Thanks again and have a beautiful week.